And today we're going to be talking about some serious spiritual problems that people or the people of God face. And uh, the most severe spiritual problems that we had to face are the same ones that are found in our text this morning, which is Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. I believe that's on page 202 in your pew Bibles, if you would like to follow with me. Uh, Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushus Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. And so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went out and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. 
Ehud escaped until they were, or while they were delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet of the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And they said to him, Follow after me, for the Lord has given you, or has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with a knot's goad, and he also saved Israel. What is your gut reaction to what you just heard? I thought so. This is a gory, gross, gruesome tale. Nothing about either Othniel or Shamgar stands out. Details are rather sketchy and not really engaging. But we are given far more details about Ehud and Eglon than we really care to hear. So let's face it, uh, the text that we just read together presents us with uh, some problems. Uh, They are the kind of problems that cause many preachers and in the world today to uh, just stay in the New Testament or at least avoid the book of Judges. Now, first of all, there is the problem of relevance. Now, some see no possibility of relevance of any kind to Christians in this story or these trilogy of um, case studies headed up by the judges. What relevance could that possibly have for us today? And, uh, you know, the account of God raising up Othniel to deliver his people from Cushan Rishathaim seems straightforward enough, but it's, that's just it. It's, it's too straightforward. There's no real drama, just an historical fact. And then in the last verse, verse 31, we encounter a man named Shamgar and his ox goad. Now, when was the last time you used an ox goad for anything. Have you ever seen an ox goad? We don't have them just lying around. They have no use for us. So, you know, where's the relevance in in all of this? So uh, should we just skip these these sections about uh, Ehud for, uh, you know, he killed Eglon and that's a little bit too graphic for us. And um, verse here about Shamgar doesn't really seem to say a, a whole lot that's relevant to us. And then there's also the problem of violence. You know, some would object that our text contains far too much of it. Too violent, not relevant, they say. And besides being irrelevant and violent, Uh, This text is just downright disgusting. It's offensive. Do we, I mean, really, do we need to know just how fat Eglon was? 
or how far into his belly uh, the sword of Ehud was thrust. Uh, do we want to read that the fat closed over the sword? Now, do we really need to know that the contents of Eglon's bowels spelled out when Ehud ran him through with his sword? So let's, let's face it, shall we? Now, this is the kind of text that we would like to avoid. It's seemingly irrelevant. It's violent. It's offensive. And then there's the question of morality. Now, one commentator actually apologizes for the text. Here's what he says, and I'll quote. By even the most elementary standard of ethics, Ehud's deception and murder of Eglon stand condemned. End of quote. Well, you know, we would like to avoid this text if we could, except for one thing. It, it is holy writ. It is scripture. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we dare not ignore it or worse, you know, condemn it as though it were something uh, not appropriate whatsoever for uh, teaching or for instruction in righteousness because it offends our sensibilities. So, what is God saying to us through these case histories of these three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar? I think it comes down to this. Deal with the spiritual problems in your life. The real spiritual problem or problems are not what they seem to be, you know, it seems to be, well, uh, irrelevant stories of violent, offensive, and seemingly immoral stuff going on that the Bible seems to be endorsing. Uh, those are not the spiritual problems that we need to be dealing with. Actually, there are uh, several serious spiritual problems that these case histories speak to. The first one I've labeled as this. Uh, we tend to forget God. In uh, verse 7 of the text, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. But, you know, there are truths about God which were once and vibrant, well, once they were vibrant and, and real, and uh, then eventually they became unreal. So the term that they forgot the Lord doesn't mean that all, all of the knowledge that they had accumulated uh, regarding the Lord uh, suddenly was deleted when they pushed some kind of button on whatever ancient um, keyboard they might have had or the equivalent of some ancient keyboard and they just suddenly forgot everything about the, the Lord from that point forward. Uh, the term uh, they forgot the Lord means that instead that the things of God just weren't real to them anymore. It just wasn't relevant, we might say. It means that they were no longer controlled by what they knew. It means that the, the words of God that had spoken to them, to them before were not speaking to them now. Uh, and uh, it, it also means that even though they knew who God was and what he wanted, uh, that those things just didn't speak to them anymore. Well, that was a big spiritual problem in, in those days. And by the way, it's a, it's a big spiritual problem for us in these days too. 
you know, what we know with our heads sometimes is just not real in our hearts. And in other words, we might know something is true intellectually, but spiritual truths do not always grab us or sink into our hearts to the point where they control us. In the book of Judges, we see the same pattern repeated over and over and over again. The people of God rebel against God through idolatry and unbelief. And then God brings judgment through foreign oppression. And then the people cry out from all of the stuff that they're enduring. And God raises up a deliverer or a judge, we'll say. And the people repent and they turn back to God for a while. And then the people fall back into sin and the cycle starts all over again. You might call this shampoo theology. Lather, rinse, repeat. You know, we have the same problem, don't we? I mean, not with shampoo. <laughs> uh, it's not that we wash our hair too much. It's that the same pattern of behavior uh, seems to be as true with us as it does with people who lived thousands of years ago. Let me put it like this. Our, our, our hearts could be compared to a, a bucket of water on a very cold day. And if, you, if, if the temperature is zero or below zero and uh, you set a bucket of water outside, it's not going to be very long before that bucket of water forms a, a, a crust of ice on the top. So if you want to keep that water from freezing, you have to go out there every so often and you know, stir it around with a stick or something uh, you know, to, to keep, it, keep, keep the movement going so that it can't freeze. And the, the same is true with our hearts. If we do not constantly tend to the needs of our hearts, then they will be like the water in a bucket on a very cold day uh, due to inactivity. Uh, our hearts, just like that water, uh, will freeze over. So we need continuous spiritual stimulation. Otherwise, our hearts will freeze up. Now, even though we know uh, many truths about God, it's easy enough for us to lose sense of their reality. You know, we know these truths but we don't taste or see or feel them. And this is why other things, we'll call them idols because that's what they are. Uh, these idols become more real to our hearts than God does. And so we serve them instead of serving God. So is there a remedy for this kind of spiritual problem? this tendency that we have to uh, forget the truths about who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, yeah, there is. Uh, the remedy for forgetting is uh, remembering. I want us to uh, listen to something that Peter said in his second epistle, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, for your reference. I don't have it on uh, slides. Um, so I'm just going to read it for us. He says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now this is what we need to do. But 
what if we don't? Well, Peter does not say, your problem is that you're not trying hard enough. He doesn't say that. What he does say is this in uh, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And now I want to drop down to verse 12. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Now, in essence, here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, if, if forgiveness and salvation are real to you, you will live it out in your life. It's going to show up in, in your life. Whatever is real to you is going to show up in your life. And so what can we do to make sure we remember who God is and what he has done for us in Christ? You're doing it. You come to church and we are reminded of these things over and over and over and over and over and over again. We hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now why do we do that? Because if we don't hear it over and over and over and over and over and over again, we forget it. It's not that the knowledge leaves our conscious memory. It means it no longer becomes part of our lives. And so we need to continually keep that bucket of water stirred up. Otherwise our hearts will freeze over. And when we come, we listen to the, the scriptures being read. We uh, confess our sins together. And also we come to the table of the Lord. And the table is a table of remembrance. And Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for us so that we would not forget what he did for us. So that we may remember that he gave his body for our sakes. That he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And we do this every week. We do it over and over, lest we forget. Because we want these spiritual truths about Christ coming to absorb our sins and give us new life and conform us to his image to become reality in life. We want this to be who we are. The cycle of forgetting God, experiencing judgment, and then deliverance through uh, someone that God raises up, only to forget God and repeat the cycle over and over again, is not a pattern that was limited to the people of God in the book of Judges. The cycle describes the pattern of behavior for us as well. Therefore, we need constant renewal. We need to be reminded of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ over and over again. And having said that, this, this does not mean that we can manufacture revival. That we might decide, hey, you know what, well, we've been kind of uh, you know, getting stale in our spiritual lives, so uh, let's have a tune-up. Uh, let's just go ahead and we'll, we'll schedule 
uh, someone to come in and speak and uh, we'll sing some rousing songs and maybe we'll have some testimonies and so forth. And so we will engineer our own spiritual renewal. We cannot do that. All we can really do is do what the people of Israel did in the book of Judges and cry out to God. And so if you are facing obstacles that are too heavy for you, cry out to God. If you are caught in a cycle of sin, um, you're just trapped in it, you don't seem to be able to get out. It's not that there's certain steps that you can take, some formula that you can evoke, cry out to God. Only God can bring new life. We cannot cause ourselves to be born again. We cannot cause our spirits to be renewed again. But we can put ourselves in position to receive the grace of God it's by crying out to him. Now here's something that I think really needs to sink in. Uh, restoration and renewal only comes through God's chosen deliverer in Judges 3. You know, Othniel is the, what we might call the, the classic deliverer. He came from a good family. Uh, he, he came from a, a, a military family. All of these men were uh, you know, valiant warriors. And so the fact that God would choose him to be a deliverer for his people makes perfect sense to everybody. Uh, so it's not hard to see that Othniel is a type of Christ. But something happens uh, that resets the cycle of sin, judgment, and deliverance to start all over again. Othniel dies. You know, the land had peace for a, a, a number of years. And as long as the judge was alive, then the people had... Um, they had safety, the land was at, at, at peace, um, they had protection from, from their enemies. But once the judge dies, now this cycle starts all over again. So wouldn't it be grand if God were to send a deliverer who would never die? You see what it's all pointing to when you see judge after judge after judge after judge uh, rules over the, the people in such a way that he bring, calls them back to God and they are free from the oppression of their enemies. But as soon as that judge dies, uh, the cycle starts all over again. Wouldn't it be grand if God were to send a deliverer who never dies? I have good news for you. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord himself speaks, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. So, we tend to forget about God. We tend to drift away from him. That's the first serious spiritual problem that our text exposes and deals with. Now we come to the second, which is that God's method of salvation is offensive to us. Now, Othniel was the type of person that you might expect God to choose as a deliverer. You know, as we said, he was a, a, a warrior from a family of faithful men. But Ehud, I mean, what kind of name is Ehud? Some have suggested that this may be the first Canadian in the Bible. Ehud? 
I don't know about that. Uh, but I do know that he was a surprising choice as a deliverer for the people of God. You know, he was different from most men. Most uh, men are right-handed. He came from a tribe, uh, a Benjamin. Uh, the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. And yet Ehud was left-handed. Now, some versions of the Bible just came out and say, you know, he was uh, left-handed. By the way, uh, about 10% of the population of the world is left-handed. So that would mean probably somewhere, uh, you know, 8 to 10 of you here are left-handed. So uh, those of you who, uh, well, let me put, put it to you like this. Uh, what do um, Reagan, uh, Clinton, uh, George H.W. Bush, Barack Obama have in common? Well, they were all presidents. I hope that you knew that. <laughs> but they were also left-handed. It's not hard. Something about left-handed people, uh, they, they tend to be more intelligent than right-handed people, maybe because they have to solve more problems than right-handed people. You know, uh, telephones are designed for right-handed people. Uh, just about, you know, scissors are, can openers are, everything's just about um, d designed for right-handed people. So, okay, how many uh, are Southpaws? Okay, uh, we may be above the national average here just a, a, a little bit. Thank you. Uh, by the way, you know that uh, even though only 10% of the people in this country are left-handed, about 25% uh, of Major League Baseball players are. So uh, there you go, just pointing some things out. Uh, Ehud was, he may have been uh, left-handed by birth, or it may have been, as some versions um, indicate, that he may have had um, an injured right arm or it may have been paralyzed from birth or uh, he could have had a, a withered arm or a withered hand that was just useless to him so he had to learn how to, to use his uh, left hand. Uh, you know, throughout history, left-handedness has been considered to be a handicap. Even uh, not too many years ago, if a child was left-handed, then you know, sometimes parents and teachers would force that child uh, to use his uh, or, or her uh, right hand, uh, lest get used to using the left hand. And somehow or another, that was considered to be um, not only a, a handicap, uh, but, but, but it, it was more than that. By the way, did, did you know uh, what the Latin word for left-handed is? It's the word sinister. Uh, so you, you, you see the prejudice uh, that's there against left-handed people all the way through history. Now, here we see this left-handed Canadian. Well, I don't know if he's Canadian or not. But anyway, we, we see this left-handed guy or this guy who has to use his left hand because uh, his right hand is, is useless to him. And so he has this idea. So what he does is he goes to his shop and his garage out back, and uh, he fashions a, a sword for himself. It's a double-edged sword, and uh, the, the text tells us that it's about a cubit in length. Uh, a cubit in those uh, days was 
from about your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. That's about 18 inches. So it's not exactly a dagger, not exactly a full-size sword. It's kind of an intermediate size. And so he takes that sword and he hides it uh, on his or under the, the clothing um, on his right thigh. I assume he got a conceal and carry permit. Um, we don't know for sure, but, and something else we don't know for sure, but he did get through security with that. You know, today you have to go, if you're going to get on an airplane, you, you can never get on an airplane uh, with a concealed sword uh, strapped to your thigh. Uh, but in the context that we're looking at today, there was this guy, Ehud, who was able to sneak this sword past uh, the, the security guards there. Uh, if they did search him, uh, they would have only searched the left thigh because that's where you know, all right-handed people would keep their sword. And so uh, they may have looked at him and seen that perhaps his uh, right arm was useless. And so they would say, well, this guy's handicapped. You know, he's not a, a real threat to us. So anyway, uh, Ehud has been appointed or he volunteers to take tribute to Eglon, who is uh, king of Moab. Uh, by the way, uh, this place where all the action is taking place is called the City of Palms. That's another name for Jericho. I mean, this is sad, isn't it? Because you read in Joshua chapter 6 how the people marched around the city of Jericho uh, six times, and then the seventh time they, they marched around and they shout, and the walls came tumbling down, and they had this great victory, you know, wipe out all the people there. And now we see that it's in enemy territory, or this territory is in enemy hands once again. And Ehud is having to deliver tribute. A tribute is another word for uh, taxation of sorts. He has to take uh, the tribute uh, to uh, King Eglon. And uh, what Ehud decides that he's going to do is. He's uh, going to outfit himself uh, with his sword. He brings the, the tribute. A tribute could be uh, you know, gold or silver or it could even be food. It probably was food because the text tells us that Eglon was a very fat man, meaning that food was really important to him. So anyway, the uh, story goes like this. Uh, Ehu brings the, the tribute uh, to Eglon and um, then he says, um, after he's presented his tribute, uh, I have a, a, a secret message for you. And so Eglon uh, dismisses his servants, and uh, he stands up, probably with some difficulty. And he was really eager to hear this secret message from God. At least he thinks he is eager, uh, because about the time that he stands up, uh, Ehud uh, reaches down with his left hand and pulls the sword out uh, from his right thigh and rams it right into his gut. And then all the gory and disgusting uh, stuff uh, described there that we, we just read. And uh, here we pause and say, this is just, it's too graphic, it's too disgusting, it's violent. It's offensive. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? Why in the world did the Holy Spirit want these disgusting details included in the narrative? <laughs> why not just say Ehud drew his sword and killed Eglon and let it go with that? Wouldn't that 
be enough. Now, actually, uh, these details about the contents of Eglon's bowels being released when Ehud's sword cut through them are essential to the story. Uh, in fact, the other details about Ehud locking Eglon uh, in the toilet are also essential to the story um, because when Eglon's uh, bowels were, were cut and the contents were released, uh, there would have been a noticeable odor in the air, and so his servants would have said, oh, we need to give our king some privacy. And uh, then when they finally do uh, decide to check on him because it's been such a long time, uh, they discover that uh, the, the, the door uh, to the uh, room that he was in was locked. So what does all this mean? It means that these details are provided for so that we know that Ehud had plenty of time to escape unnoticed. This is part of the plan of deliverance. So it kind of reminds us of that verse in Romans 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, those called according to his purpose, even things that are you know, offensive and uh, violent and just disgusting. You mean to say that God can even take things like that, that that happen in your life and he can bring something good out of that? Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's what we're saying. Now, I want to focus on this idea of offensiveness just for a moment. I mean, what could be more violent, more offensive, more disgusting than this story that we're reading and talking about today. Actually, there is another story in Scripture that you are very familiar with that is more violent, more offensive than this one. Can anything really be more violent or more offensive than the crucifixion. You just can't get more violent or offensive than that. And it's not just the physical aspects of the humiliation and the extreme torture that Jesus suffered. And to be stripped and beaten and nailed to a cross was about as terrible an ordeal as we can imagine. But then there was also this fake worship that was being offered uh, to Jesus. You know, they placed the crown of thorns on his head and uh, pretend that they're worshiping. They're, they're, they're mocking him. Um, but the whole experience was violent, offensive. And you know that there are a lot of people, a, a lot of people in history and a lot of people today who don't want to hear the message of the gospel because it's just too offensive. They, they are offended by it. Are, are, are you saying that I'm not a good enough person, that I can't come to God on my own, that I don't deserve heaven because of all of the good things that I have done, that I would need for Christ to be treated like this in order for me to be forgiven, uh, that's offensive. 
You know, who would be attracted to such an offensive gospel as the gospel of Christ? Well, not many. But it seems that we have embraced a gospel that is intended to make people happy and empower them to live successful lives. That's the gospel that so many people believe is the real gospel. But in effect, it's really just the American dream. So this really is a serious spiritual problem. Only those who are willing to confess that they are sinners and embrace the cross and endure whatever shame and offense comes with it can be saved. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, we're coming face to face with some serious uh, spiritual problems in the, the third chapter of Judges. Uh, from Othniel, we learn that we tend to forget about God and turn away from him. From Ehud, we learn that God chooses to save his people through violent and offensive means. And uh, these are both serious spiritual problems for us. But there's one more serious spiritual problem uh, that this chapter confronts. And that is found for us in verse 31. And here's the problem, uh, the belief that some things just can't be done. In verse 31, we're told that uh, Shamgar used an ox goad to kill 600 Philistines with it. And that's all it says about Shamgar. He only gets one verse here. Uh, so obviously we're not going to be taking much time talking about him. But I do want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about the problem that he was confronting. And, and the problem I believe that he was confronting was, was this. Uh, there is this widespread belief that there are some things that cannot be done. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that the Israelites were intimidated by the iron chariots that were uh, in, in the land that the Canaanites had. And so they believed that they couldn't possibly overcome iron chariots, even though God had guaranteed that they would have victory if they were obedient to him. And so consequently, they were convinced that defeating them was something that could not be done. So they gave up without even trying. But apparently, somebody forgot to tell Shamgar that an ox goad is an ineffective weapon in battle. And it's a good thing that Shamgar didn't know that he couldn't kill enemy soldiers with an ox goad uh, because the, the, the text tells us that he killed 600 Philistines with one of those things. It's just uh, a, a stick about six feet long and it's got a spike, a metal spike at, at one end. It seems like there are other occasions in the Bible where you see where someone had limited resources but used those limited resources to display the glory of God and bring great benefit to his people. You know, David only had a sling and five smooth stones. Uh, remember in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000 before he does, the disciples want to send the people away uh, because there's not enough uh, places for them to go and, and, and get food. 
but Andrew comes and he's found this, uh, this guy who's got five loaves and two fishes, but what are they among so many? You know, the belief that something just can't be done, even by God, is pervasive. But nothing is impossible with God, even things that are seemingly impossible for us. One day, my oldest son, Matt, um, went to a pizza place with some co-workers. Uh, there were two other guys there, so they went to a, a local pizzeria in a, a small town in Tennessee and ordered a pizza and uh, Matt asked the, the guy, the pizza guy, he said, could, could you cut that into uh, six slices for us? And uh, the guy just looked at him and he thought a minute and he said, that can't be done. Uh, so Matt said, no, you just make a Y and then you cut each of those pieces of the Y in two and, 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 and you got six pieces. And it, it didn't register with the guy that you could have six equal pieces of the pizza. He just said, it can't be done. And so uh, they had to cut the pizza, pizza up by themselves when it was delivered. But we're kind of predisposed to think that there are some things that are just not possible unless we have the resources that we need, we tend to often leave God out of the equation. So, what is the message in this passage? Well, we identified it as dealing with the spiritual problems that you're facing. And it could be that you are dealing with, um, you know, one or more of uh, these problems that we've identified, we, we have this tendency to forget what God has done for us. Um, the ways that God works are sometimes offensive to us. Sometimes we react against that. And, and sometimes we believe, believe that there are some things that just can't be done. And if you take each one of these problems by itself, you know, that, that's serious. But I'm not suggesting that we identify one of these and, and work on it. What I want to do is take them all together as a unit and see how they all work together to point to the one real problem that is greater than every other problem. When we put them all together, they point to the greatest spiritual problem of all, that we are all guilty sinners and we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. And the third chapter of Judges is an illustration of how God saves us from our sins. Salvation comes not through great human triumph or through our skills or our victories. It doesn't come to us like it does in the Hollywood movies. It will come from outsiders who were born in mangers uh, through weakness, uh, not what the world calls strength, uh, through defeat, not what the world calls victory, through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. That is the message. Salvation comes not through human heroes. Salvation comes to us through the real 
hero of Judges 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In his name, we have life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, when we come to a passage of scripture as we have come to today, we naturally just want to skip over that for obvious reasons. And it reminds us of how we often want to just skip over or gloss over our sins. But but you have revealed to us that we can't escape sins by ignoring them or by trying to deal with them ourselves or thinking that our righteousness outweighs whatever sins we may have committed. We confess that we need a Savior, and there is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus. We're grateful that every other scripture points to this one truth, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. We ask now that you will be at work in us. Thank you for being at work. And uh, Tiana and Alyssa, and bringing them to the the point where they make a a, a public uh, proclamation of their faith in you and uh, their desire to uh, unite with you in the likeness of your death, burial, burial and resurrection. And we ask, Lord, that you will be working that out in um, the lives of those of us here who have not come to that realization yet. We pray that your word becomes real, that your gospel becomes real, because we know our sin is certainly real. Through Christ we pray.